Yo, yo, this is Jason Goff from the Full Go Podcast. Me and the crew, we like to entertain you. And we're going to do more of that this football season because the Bears should be more intriguing. There should be more fascination. Justin Fields, is this the make or break year? Is DJ Moore the piece that's going to put them over the top? You can catch us on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays or when we have an emergency podcast when we have breaking news. Make sure you follow the Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, his emotional stability is back in the hands of Nick Sirianni. It's Andy Greenwald! Can we double post this on the Philly special feed? Uh, should we have like a, a Philly special special with uh, with Ben and with Nick Sirianni. With Nick Sirianni and Nick Foles with Ben Solak and Shil Kapadia on this pod? My thing is, and I'll leave this open to our listeners, because guys, guess what? We still have culture to talk about. We will. Yeah. At least for this week. Sure. Unclear I'm actually, I'm going to tie this all together. Oh, great. What I was going to say is, I don't know those guys well enough to know if they'd like to do a home and home, because like, do they want to talk about our things? Because I want to talk about their things. I know you do. Real bad. I know you do. Your reemergence in the mm-hmm. last 24 months as yeah. like always on sports guy, but also yeah. like really, really susceptible mm-hmm. to being knocked off your square by anything going wrong. I've always been that guy. It's destabilizing. It's for you? destabilizing for me. It's destabilizing. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, because I feel like I have to give you so much. Oh. It's Over true. the course of those days uh, where I'm trying to keep you, I'm keep trying to keep you tethered. As my friend or as the guy who's just like linked to you're linked to me professionally and you need me to bring it. No, I love you. I would do anything for you. But, but on our on our Eagles chats, and by the way, the Philadelphia Eagles played yesterday, so that's really the most TV I One watched. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's the thing. Chris is trying out a it's not trying out, like you generally are a a, a level-headed guy. I am, yeah. People know that about you. But on the chat, like you were really working that angle of like, guys, it's week one. I was week one. Jalen hadn't played in camp mm-hmm. that much. He hadn't played in the preseason. And it's mm-hmm. Bill Belichick getting a summer to scheme for us. From my perspective, that was one of the worst few hours of my recent right. life. Right. It was awful. And it's like, it was a feel bad win. 20 weeks of this with you. I'm terrible. <laughs> I've never lot like people should know this about me. I run hot and cold. Uh-huh. I have extreme reactions. It's, this it's, is why I need ChatGPT. I got to put a bot in this text thread right. so that I can just be like, you're right, bro. Tough stuff. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so sad. So cruel. No, I love it. I, I, I love it. it. It's just that I am, I think the things that make me a decent to middling podcaster make me a profoundly bad fan of sports because... Yeah. I am not interested in a spirited contest. I am not interested in a, a white-knuckled edge-of-a-seat, I-just-love-athletics <laughs> kind of afternoon. No, you want 40 to nothing. You the, want what the Cowboys did to the Giants. Yes. Yeah. And what I also want is that never to happen to the Cowboys again. Like, right. those are all, those are, those are my asks. Yeah. One of the funny things that happened yesterday, mm-hmm. so obviously the NFL season came back, and right. Andy and I are often like, man, we need a, a monocultural show to discuss that everybody is participating in a la Succession. And, you know, Succession is sort of hilarious because two to five million people or whatever are watching Maybe. it at any given yeah. time, and yet we treated it like it was uh, the super, literally the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And then there really is only one monocultural thing 
And it's the thing that you would just be like, well, I guess I had to get up this morning and pay $400 Dude, for Sunday tickets. I had. So that I can watch fucking football. Hey, America. It's me, your buddy. <laughs> yeah, so Chris, among other things, just so really, you really were available to me this weekend in a way that I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. Um, generally, for the past, when I say generally, I mean for the last 20 to 25 years, I have been able to survive being an Eagles fan, just skitching on the kindness of friends or national um, television or bars and to watch my team. And the, the, the way things shook out yesterday, it wasn't a, wasn't a gathering place, wasn't a squad forming. I, I will leave you unblemished because you've been so helpful to me. I mm-hmm. won't say why you were not available. <laughs> now it sounds like because you're having a procedure done. <laughs> yeah. You had plans. Yeah, okay, you had plans. I, 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 I unfortunately had plans. And, and and also, to Chris's credit, when I was just like, so that's how it's going to be now, huh? You were like, it's week one. <laughs> yeah, you were like, I didn't know you, the, the snowflakening had taken place. Yeah. Really. Like, this is what's wrong with America. Yeah. Um, Guys hanging out with their wives. So I had to watch. So I had to, like, figure out a way to watch the game. And yeah. I did not want to go to a, a public house, I think they're called. Uh-huh. Um, so I was like, okay, Sergey and Andre and the rest of the team at Google. What do you got at Alphabet? What do you got for me? Yeah. And what they got for me was a gouging the likes of which I was not prepared for. It's unbelievable for. what we're willing to do to watch, like, sometimes a pretty mediocre product. Like, let's, like, there I was, are, and I was miserable yeah, with, with and, the product. And it's just, I mean, it's, NFL is great and I, I watch it every week and I watch like multiple games yeah. every week, but it is the only thing in the world where I was just like, $400? That makes sense. But it's not just that. They were like, here are the four ways you can spend $400. Would you like to spend it today or in six days or incrementally for the rest of your life now that you own YouTube TV? Like, it was, it was wild. They were like, here are four choices. They're not choices. Yeah. And although I, to, to tie it into the larger cultural conversation, on Bill's podcast, he had, an, uh, he had a great guest last week talking about the Charter Disney thing. He, unla- you know, we talked about the Charter Disney thing. It was Ben. Ben Thompson. Ben Thompson, thank you. It's still a word I have a hard time saying, even though I subscribe to the newsletter and many of the podcasts, including Greatest of All Talk with Andrew Sharp, which is one of my favorite basketball pods that we don't make. But also, that's not a a word. That's why you struggle with it. I get that. Um, He was Ben Thompson, that's right, who I thought was the offensive coordinator for the Lions. That's that's Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson. Yeah. Thank God you're here today. Um, But, so one of the differences between Bill's conversation with Ben about the charter Disney cable TV kerfluffle, the things that differed from us is that he had um, facts Mm -hmm. and he's done, he's quite knowledgeable about the subject. So I really enjoyed listening to that. Wish I'd heard it before. I can only speak as a charter spectrum user, which I'm fine coming out from behind the veil and saying that that's who I am. No, it's a human interest story for you. And yeah, it it really hits home. and it mm-hmm. was very interesting, Andy. These, we're talking about all these various packages. Well, well, I promise, this is tying into the TV consumer element of this podcast. You mentioned all the packages that YouTube were offering. They very savvily were like, it's cheaper to get YouTube TV yes. plus the NFL package than it is just to get the NFL this, package. This is the connection I wanted to make too. And yeah. I thought about it long and hard. Yeah. I thought about cutting the cord. Kaya is crying on the inside because she's just like, all I do is watch... Steph Curry highlights on my dad's DirecTV password. Yeah. But I really did think about cutting the cord. I like having all my movie channels. I like having them choose the movies that are on sometimes that I'm just like, oh, look, that's on. Mm-hmm. I like having live sports. I love I love a little, like, turn on the TV and it's like, wh- here's the weather in SoCal. And I'm like, what a shock. It's fucking hot and dry. Like, <laughs> It's actually been quite humid, but go on. Um, but I was very, very, very close. Mm-hmm. And you know what D-Day was? Do you what? know what like, Tell the, me. The, the red line was? Tonight, it was 5 p.m. tonight when the the Bills and the Packers played on Monday Night Football. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have that, you couldn't watch it. I was like, "This seems really bad," and I think I might just cut the cord and go to YouTube TV now. And and then they they made the deal. Would you like me to live text the game for you in my inimitable style of positivity? <laughs> Are you going to be watching the the, the no. Jets tonight? No. But what I what I wanted to say about the Ben thing, in addition to that, was just that um, he was talking about the basic mafia-like arrangement that ESPN has had with the cable providers for all these years, baked with the baked-in assumption that you're going to pay whatever we say you're going to pay because we have sports. And that that was sort of undergirding a lot of the decisions made by 
the major media companies over the last few years as they began to siphon off all of their scripted content to streamers and sort of marginalized cable companies, maybe even in advance of what the consumers wanted, mm -hmm. with the understanding that everybody's going to live with this because this, we still have the live sports. Yes. And that's still going to move this particular needle. And that this um, conversation, this moment, this, this dust-up between Charter and Disney was based on the idea that for the first time, the cable company, in this case Charter, didn't blink first. And was like, what you actually are offering isn't that valuable. Well, and possibly a strategic misstep on Bob Iger's part to be like, we're getting rid of this TV shit soon. Yep. Like it's dragging yep. our company down. It, and I'm sure Charter was like, oh, but you're still making us pay through the nose for it though. And not just through the nose. I think the other detail that came out of that piece that I really appreciated, this is something that I think I was aware of, but he, again, in the conversation, Ben and Bill really brought it out, which is that it wasn't just, you're going to pay whatever we want for ESPN because that's where the TV, the sports are. It's that, by the way, you're also going to pay for ESPN2 and ESPN Classic and all these other marginal Disney-owned channels that we want to make extra money off of. I, and what happened today... They got rid of some of those channels. That's how the deal got done. Mm -hmm. Because the Monday Night Football game, congratulations to you, Chris, and your household, yeah. will be on Charter. But what won't be on Charter going forward is like Disney Kids yep. and a bunch of other channels that I'm sure have their fans, but broadly are there because Disney wanted to get more dollars out of companies like Charter. Yeah. All of this is to say, I am not today's consumer, clearly, because I was like, how much would you like? Okay. <laughs> I just want to like push the bruise of my life a little harder today in the comfort of my own home and watch my potentially overhyped team struggle. Yeah. And then when there's five Eagles national games and you're just like, how much am I paying well, that's to, the other for the, the right to watch Jags Falcons? Well, I think people should be really, this is riveting because I have, I think, five days left to cancel. And it's and, on Thursday. They're on national TV. And then they're on Monday night, I think, the net following week. So who can say? So basically, can I come over? <laughs> That's what this was about. You can always come over. Thanks, man. Andy, I don't know if you noticed on Sunday how closely you were paying attention to the advertisements. Well, I, I think I know where you're going. I mean, I was watching the ads because I love beer. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And you're, you're, you're invested heavily in the WeGo V company. <laughs> <laughs> also, Josh Allen, charming. Uh, they there was a recurring ad for the Paramount Plus show Lioness that aired throughout the day in which one of the quotes that they run is, quote, absolutely riveting, mm -hmm. The Ringer. Now, I did not get credit for this as an individual, which is uh -huh, fine. Right. Uh, but I would like to say that that is what I said about it. Are Lioness. you sure That's that was you? Quote. Yes. So this is an audio quote from the Ringer Podcast Network. Yeah potentially said on this podcast. It was. I said, it's absolutely riveting. I remember when I said that. I think you said that on Sports Card Nonsense. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it wasn't. So you said that. But I wish it had I, just said the watch the ringer so that you also were like responsible it. for it. <laughs> so, so as soon as that ad aired, what was the, the slack talk? Was like, were Bill and Jeff like, this won't stand? No, we, but Andrew Grudadaro not... was like, did you see this? And it's a picture of Morgan Freeman and it says, absolutely riveting. <laughs> We're sure like, it's you. It's not. I was like, it's definitely me. And he was just like, ha, ha, ha. I was like, that has to be It Chris. wasn't Mallory. No. It wasn't Katie Baker. Nope. It has not been written about on the site, nor Whoa. talked about on the podcast network with the unless I talk about it. Wow. I talked about it on the big picture. I talk about it on the watch. This is like if something that that lunatic in Texas, Chip Roy, says. He's just like, actually, money is space aliens. And then it says, U.S. Congress. Right? Like, yeah. that's kind of what this is. Kind of. But I stand by it. I stand by it. And Wow. Good for, congratulations. I do think that everything is about paying it forward. <laughs> uh, and I think it's about, like, service. Right? Okay. You tried with Linus. With me, you mm -hmm. tried, you watched two episodes and you said, sir, I can't do it. I can't stomach these advanced interrogation techniques. I was like, sir, thank you for your service. Yeah. I see where you're going with this. I do just want to ask, is this your first pull quote that you know of? Do you think you've been, have oh, you been no. pull? Oh, no. The kid's been pull quoted before. Is there any, are, have you ever been pull quoted? I'm sorry to put you on the spot in a way that you kind of regret. Like maybe it was said it. Nope. Nope. You always stand by it. No, I think, so. I think, I mean, I, I don't think that you, nobody is listening to this show. And he's going to like hear us talk about a show. And we're like, absolutely right. terrible. You, and then they say, absolutely. <laughs> like, Do you know my favorite, um, 
favorite example of you getting pull quoted was? What's that? There was an issue. I don't know if you saw this. There was an issue of National Geographic in 2015 <laughs> that had a feature on on the ocean. Yeah. And to sell that issue, they were like, this is dope. Chris Ryan. And it, it was, again, it was looking like Rotten Tomatoes kind of fudging it. Because sure. you didn't say ocean. You said the sea. The sea, yeah. Which conjures up different romantic memories. But I was really proud of you for that because a lot of people don't know that about the sea. But I was thinking a lot about, you know, the Lioness was largely a solo project for me. And that's not what this <laughs> podcast's about. So right. yesterday, aside from watching Patriots Eagles in the spare moments that I had, uh, which was considerable. I, I, was, I watched the game. Uh, I also mm-hmm. spent four hours yeah. watching Drops of God. Now, are you talking about Kadarius Tony in the Chiefs game? <laughs> <laughs> you really watched the show I wanted you to watch? Yes. I'm really touched by I this. I got up through the fourth episode. I know that I have not you know, completed the but You series. watched half of the show. Yeah, I watched half of the show. That, first of all, thank you. You're welcome. This is yet another thing you did for me this weekend. Yeah. So I wanted to, you know, I wanted to show you, I wanted to model good behavior to you, you know? <laughs> so that's how we, by the way, you're, I, I am a parent, but that is correct. That is how children learn. So yeah, I, I wanted to, so I watched that and then we also watched Winning Time. So that's what we're going to talk about for this uh, next portion of the show. Unless you had any other news you wanted to hit. Um, oh, did you want to talk about Brian Hagelin's, like him not being able to get LA Confidential 2 off the ground? Kind of, I did. There was a really interesting article in Deadline that Andy shared with me that I thought was just like a, a real hashtag this town kind of this thing. Is, my, my buddy Justin sent me this and I instantly was like, thank you for giving us the material for the last ever episode of The Watch. Do you want to talk about this? I do because I, I don't, I think this is a good like palate cleanser in the sense that like, you know, swishing battery acid is a good palate cleanser because this makes me feel terrible. Yeah. And I don't really feel like I have anything new to say about it. So Brian Helgeland is one of the most accomplished screenwriters probably the last 20, 30 years. Uh, He wrote the original LA Confidential adaptation from the James Elroy novel. Curtis Hanson directed. It was obviously one of the more beloved movies of of modern times in a a lot of ways. It's a classic. There was he's he's promoting a film, an independent film at Toronto, I believe. So he was kind of mm-hmm. giving giving some off the cuff remarks, and somehow got onto uh, a story about he and James Elroy going around town pitching what sounds like an absolutely fucking amazing sequel to L.A. Confidential, set during the Patty Hearst era, that would have starred. Russell Crowe. Yeah, Crowe and Guy Pierce were back. Yes. To play and the character. Chadwick Car- Boseman was going to also appear in this film. So this was, yeah, during the Patty Hearst era, the, the SLA, the Symbionese Liberation Army, is down in LA. So it's a whole different kind of unrest. Crowe and Pierce would be playing, obviously, aged versions of their characters, where yeah. they ended up, what happened to them. And this is Elroy's in on this. This is not Helglin like freelancing and trying right. to like keep things, keep things moving. And Chadwick Boseman was attached like he said yes to play a young cop working for Mayor Bradley during this time. And per Helgeland, they pitched it to everyone. They went to Warner Brothers first. And Warner Brothers, again, this is Helgeland saying this, so I'm yeah. sure these, this is not verbatim. But Helgeland told him, we don't make movies like this. Warner Brothers told Helgeland Warner Brothers. that. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's describing how James Elroy, who is a, a character, yes. um, is like, like a, quote, performance artist and doing the pitch. Uh, he then says that when they made it to Netflix, that the Netflix, uh, at least one executive at Netflix, fell asleep during the pitch. Defeated, Helglin says, quote, I got home and said, well, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt, too, reading this. Now, look, this is obviously the writer's perspective. And yeah. we don't really, I don't really know when this. Well, I was going to say, obviously, we can, if Chadwick Boseman, like, this is. This we can is date this, I would say, probably. 17, 16? Yeah, it's it's post- uh, Netflix is a streaming yeah. colossus. Post Netflix wants to make movies, so I would say this is probably somewhere fifteen to twenty range yeah. in that five year period, and that's really depressing. There's nothing news in this, but it it is just something that I, I these drums should continue to be beaten because whether or not that movie would have been good or as good as the original, if you are a creative executive in this town, have the balls to say yes to this. You kind of have to. If you want a future, probably not your company, 
you got to take that risk. Well, I also, but to have a future making movies or making the movies that inspired you to do it, you have to say yes sometimes. I wonder who, how the actual ownership of the LA Confidential material, I mean, he says they had to go to Warner Brothers first because, yeah. and he's obviously pitching it as a film and not a, a series. That's right. Which, uh, I, which I love. I do wonder whether or not in 2023, if you said, I'd like to make LA Confidential a sequel to LA Confidential and the Elroy universe as a prestige series, whether it would have more takers. I don't think so. I think sadly, no, because I don't think, I mean, someone comes back to you and it's like, so it's Perry Mason, which we loved. But again, that's not a one-to-one comparison. But I, I don't know what stars have to align literal stars, but also just in terms of the, the particular moments to get something like this through. Is it is it the right cast? Is it the right network? Is it the right package? The other thing that's not explained here and might be relevant to it is that if Warner Brothers controlled the underlying IP, the tenor of the story could be different, meaning mm-hmm. it could have ultimately been a frustrating business decision, which is to say they went to Warner Brothers and someone with Warner Brothers said, not in a castigating manner, said, we don't make movies like this anymore. And then what's not quoted is him saying, but as the studio, (laughs) we could partner with someone. It sounds like something that Netflix might do because they're trying to break into movies and we could co-pro it. And then they go to Netflix. Netflix is like, that's not what we're trying to do right now. We don't like the numbers that Warner is saying we have to, you know. Sure. Things get bogged down there. So it is never as simple as the screenwriter being like, this great injustice has yeah, been... Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's no shortage of amazing unmade project stories out there. Like, obviously, during Tar, I think we all had a ton of fun like listening to Todd Field interviews where he's like, oh yeah, then there was the movie I was going to make with Joan Didion, but nobody wanted it. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like, are you serious? Like, nobody yeah. wanted to make the Joan Didion Todd Field movie? And I think that was with also with Kate Blanchett. I think that was the first thing... Yeah. Uh, look, yes. You could make... You could spend the rest of your career and probably do a good podcast just talking about Stuff that didn't get made. And how cool it would have or could have been. It's just reading the story at this moment when things seem pretty bleak. Like, I just, if and when these strikes end, no, they will end. But, like, I will be very curious six months after that date to see, like, has anyone learned anything? And is anyone taking any kind of chance? Because I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that for as much as everyone is eager for the end of this, me as much as anyone else, I think there's going to be a, a pretty rough reconstruction period. And we don't really know what that's going to look like. And I can't imagine coming out of this bruising time that the dominant ethos in the boardrooms is going to be like, let's take chances. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. I want to talk to you a little bit about winning time coming out of this conversation that we're having about a movie that never got made. I think we could do anything. Let's do Drops of God at the end because yeah, I feel very... I want to talk to you about winning thing. time specifically because, you know, I, 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 I did not care for last night's episode very much. And it might be... It is the penultimate episode of the season. And Jeff Perlman, whose book Winning Time is based on and is essentially the only person really like kind of pushing the show because of the strikes, has been pretty vocal about the need for viewers and that you know, if we want a third season of Winning Time, the numbers need to go up. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether or not this is a really good example of all the best intentions in the world going into something that ultimately wasn't, not ill-conceived because I think the first season was really enjoyable and there have been parts of the second season that have had, I've liked some things about the second season, but everything that I think is wrong about this show was happening last night in last night's Sunday night's episode. Now, for people who maybe haven't been watching Winning Time but are still listening to the podcast or whatever, I just think I'll, I'll, I'll say that Winning Time's flaws right now are that I think it's spread too thin among too many characters mm-hmm. and kind of making sure to check in on too many different storylines that the show has started regardless of like how germane they are to the story of the that the show is trying to tell. I would even say a little more 
pointedly, which is to say, in the second season, the story that the show wants to tell seems to be a heroic story of actual history. Uh-huh. There does not seem to be any pretense anymore to be like, here's something you didn't know. Or here's here's a different way to look at it through the lens of history. Yeah, It is entirely, the Lakers are the good guys, and they're going to do their best to scratch and claw over the mountain. Right. And there are some funny, you know, like little like, in the moment, they thought they were trading for some seven-foot Swedish backup, but they actually get Byron Scott as like an add-on to the deal for Norm Nixon. And there's some like cool history stuff like that. I also think a really good example of what I'm trying to illustrate here is like uh, there have now been probably more than a dozen scenes of this in this season of Magic Johnson and his wife-to-be Cookie talking on the phone. And it serves both as a kind of like Greek chorus to kind of talk about where the Lakers are at any given point, but it's also, I find to be a maddeningly repetitive uh, scene that they have gone back to so many times. And it's either because this is how Magic and Cookie really used to talk on the phone and they wanted to like be, they honor that story, or it's just a like a kind of lack of narrative imagination to kind of stall these episodes just as they get momentum and we stop for what are very long conversations between Magic and Cookie that uh, I really feel like take the kind of momentum out of the show. And um, it's really interesting because I think that there is a brilliant show in this Mm -hmm. idea. And I think that there is some absolutely gripping filmmaking going on sometimes and that there are some really good performances in this show. But I think that this should have been HBO's The Crown. It should have been something that was conceived of as a decade-spanning series rather than the real story of the Showtime Lakers. And one thing that is evident in this episode that just aired last night, Beat LA, it's called, is these massive swings in time jumps. Well, it was wild. Which... To to go through what was essentially starting to feel like in the first season, it was like, okay, they're going to do a season of TV for a season of the NBA. That sure will take a while to get to 1984, but that's cool. And then all of a sudden in this season, we essentially jump a year and a half ahead. In this episode? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, we jump a year and a half in this episode, and nothing has changed for any of these people. It, it sort of is like proof of concept that the concept isn't that good if... We spend the first season going behind, underneath the hood of Magic Johnson, being like, "Oh, the legend that exists today and this beloved superstar. This is what this is the raw, unformed kid that came into the league and his relationships and his love of of women and his needing to learn to share the ball and all these things." So, okay, well, that's interesting. At least, I mean, again, for people like Chris who noted last week, this is not a pull quote yet in an ad for the NBA, but quote, "I know basketball, the ringer." This might not have been a surprise for you, but at least it added some shading and some nuance to the character. Um, The last year and a half of his life, apparently, were completely unnoteworthy. Yeah. He's still just playing basketball, and no one seems to have an opinion about him or his greatness. And it's exactly, like, the way it's posited is exactly in the same place in the team that he was after they lose to Philadelphia. They have nothing has changed. No no egos have been checked. No playing style has changed. Also, the, the, the camera... The storytelling lens of the show has this very weird telescoping effect where we no longer have any macro view of like, has he changed the game? Is he beloved? Is he feared? Is he respected? We don't know anymore because he's still just sitting in the same place in the locker room, having the same middling mid relationships with everyone on the team and calling Cookie on the phone. Now, this is also speaks to the essential flaw of the show, which is Magic and Cookie Johnson did not get married until 1991. Yeah. Sorry to spoil that for people who are like, oh, he proposed. Everything's going to be great now. The show's slavish fealty to the historical record, like with many historical shows that are created without any imagination beyond let's just make everything fiction. Like, let I me mean, not make everything fiction. Let's just fictionalize everything and just do, you know, like, like dinner theater of history. You're stuck. Mm-hmm. You're stuck with the record. And that's just what you're going to have to deal with. I, I, I'm with you, it, it, especially in the contrast with last week. Because last week was a pretty entertaining episode of Mm -hmm. television. We're not sitting here being like Winning Time is as good as Succession or any of the other shows that we love or uh, hold in high esteem. But 
at its best, this is an extremely entertaining exercise that is HBO just threw the bank at. And so you get the results. Also, this Pat Riley story has some humanity and pathos and Adrian Brody is great. Yeah. I love that episode. By contrast, this is one of the weakest episodes of a show that we have been watching in quite some time. Yeah. I was, jaw was on the floor, honestly, because you just take it out of context. Now, I'm not a David Simon guy where like, oh, episodes don't matter. They're just chapters in a book. But what was this episode even? Well, I I think that that... What, What was the shape of it? What was the story of it? What was the point of it? Other than... I think it was to race to like an endpoint. It was to race to an endpoint. And you could feel that. And when you are feeling that, you are robbing everyone. You're robbing the audience. You're robbing the creative team who don't have room to, you know, to do more interesting things. Yeah, you or rob more interesting us of scenes. Pat Riley becoming Pat Riley. You rob us of Pat Riley becoming Pat Riley. Um, Devon Nixon, who plays his father on the show, is one of the best performers on the show, I think, is off the show now. He gets a very quick uh, coda, quick send-off. You end up in very weird places where Jerry Buss is now, other than Magic, the de facto hero of the show. And so the revelation that he has married a girlfriend but not told her that he's already married. Right. And we leave the scene being like, feeling sorry for him. Like we are from his perspective that this is unfair. It took me multiple times to get that his, re- like her reference to like you're already married is yes. not a dig at him about being married to the Lakers. That's what I thought it was too. But yeah. in fact, it's like, oh, I guess he just didn't divorce his first wife. Well, Honey is also a fictional character, which right. is another weird thing. And I don't know what this lawsuit or if there was like a, I'm assuming that there was some sort of lawsuit that would possibly cost him the Lakers at some point, but... And, right, and that if that lawsuit existed and was settled, that real person wouldn't want to be fictionalized in a television right. show. So it's a composite character or representative of how he handled his personal life. But again, it's the framing that, like, he's the hero here when a more nuanced or more interesting or more objective show would be like, this was a complicated guy. And I think the first season was more interested in doing that, but you get so caught up in that downhill race towards the historical things you want to talk about you end up with, and I and I think that the the low point was the eight minutes on screen where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, arguably the greatest player of all time, certainly top three by any metric, including those of our boss, right, mm-hmm. um, goes from being uh, an aloof intellectual who disdains the sport of basketball, everything other than the purity of the game itself. Yeah, he wants out of L.A. He wants out of L.A., but also he dismisses any attempts to uh, to pander as like to shucking and jiving it. and yeah. dancing, and he doesn't want to be a coach in this league. He wants nothing to do with any of it. To three wide-eyed children hand him a Herbie Hancock record, and he and he delivers the Battle of Agincourt St. Swithin's Day speech to his teammates to rally them to the title because suddenly he realizes that basketball players mean something to people. That is insulting, right? Like it's insulting as a entertainment, yeah, for us. But it's I think it's also I, the first season when real life people were like, "That's not how it was." I'm like, "Well, yeah, nobody wants to be portrayed the way Magic Johnson was portrayed in the first season as sleeping with anything that moves." Like I get that, whether it's true or not, that's a secondary conversation. But this is unfair to Kareem, who is just like a legend and a genius, and. Even if I didn't like him or well, care for him personally, that like, turn is so facile. You know, there's two things I really wanted to address. Yeah. One is like when you watch sports dramas or dramatized sports stories, typically the best ones are the ones that are kind of happening on the margins. Yes. Uh, it right. is something like Slapshot. You know, where it's like, I mean, I'm, doesn't this doesn't have to be like real sports. I mean, I'm talking about like, why is it that people beloved are like movies like Slapshot or Bull Durham are beloved? Because we fill in the characters. Crash Davis isn't something that like we're like, I already have a relationship to Crash Davis. No, it's like this is like a recognizable trope of the guy who had it all but never was able to put it together and is now overstate his welcome at his station of life. Or Slapshot, same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Rough and tumble blue collar guys who are hanging on to a childhood dream of playing sports, but are living in a like dying factory town. Or, or my favorite example, the classic film Celtic Pride, which is just about <laughs> two every every guy Celtic fans who, in an attempt to swing the season, kidnap the starting point guard of the Utah Jazz. Right, just adjacent. Right. Um, you know, then there are movies like Moneyball, which I think a lot of people had factual problems with in terms of its like representation of what happened in that historic Oakland A's season because mm-hmm. they were like, well, it was Billy Bean, but they he also had like a 
once in a generation pitching staff and Johnny mm-hmm. Damon and Terrence Long and Jermaine Dye were really good. And like well, the it, players he was betting on were good. And, yeah. Like, but it wasn't just like Scott together. Hatterberg was like out of nowhere became Babe Ruth because Billy Bean understood something no one else did. It was right. like, he also had some really good players on the A's. They are not in the movie because it doesn't go towards the narrative of right. what they're trying to say. Um, but it still is dramatizing something that people normally don't see, which is front office stuff, mm-hmm. you know? This is the issue with what they're trying to do, is they are trying to tell a complete story about several of the biggest figures in the history of a sport, and they can't decide whose show it is. Mm-hmm. And there is a version of this show where the authorship of the Lakers is what this is about, and it's about Buss and Riley. Yes. And I think that's probably the best version of the show that they could have done unless they were going to do something that was like three decades of the Los Angeles Lakers, going from Magic and Kareem to Shaq and Kobe to LeBron. But then again, like I, I think what you're pointing to so smartly is, I've, I say this anytime we talk about you know the early decisions that really define what a show can be. And one of the earliest decisions that any creator has to consider is, if you're given the keys to, to do this job, what can be daunting is that you can take it anywhere. So the most important decision early is putting down your fence posts and being like, I understand that this show could be this or it could be that. It would be fun to explore this other thing, but we're going to focus here. This is our patch mm-hmm. and we're going to stay, stay within that. And if you decide early on to your point that this is going to be like the crown, but for the NBA focused on the Lakers, then you sketch out in advance the three seasons and then you can then steer the story towards the pillars of theme that you want to hit. And then you could be telling a story that would be larger than the sum of its easily Wikipedia parts. Mm-hmm. Meaning when Magic was drafted, the league and America was like this. And when Shaq and Kobe won their final title, the league and America was like this. That is a pretty wide fence. Yeah. Or that's like, what's what's Taylor Sheridan's ranch? Like that's the type <laughs> the of acreage. We're, that's the acreage we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. But at least you have a sense of it and you can steer, you can pour your story into it. This show is trying to do all of the story about something that is known without any of the other stuff. And we keep talking about, look, I don't think that Adam McKay is some like wise shaman who knows how to do storytelling on a different level. I don't even know if his version of the show when he was more involved would have worked. But the first episode leading even a little bit to two and three and some of it like a hangover effect throughout the season was interested in talking about uh, the NBA through a racial and cultural prism. Yeah, and I think it was also way. a little bit to grab another, I think it was like a little bit more racy. I think it was a little bit more deflating the mythology around the Lakers. Yes. Like those opening episodes paint a picture of professional athletes that's a little bit more like, hey, behind the scenes, this is what it was like. It, it, it's just shocking to me how reductive it, it's become. Like, why, why are you including any of the Celtics stuff if they're just to be the villain? Like that, and now, again, I, I want to be clear. I want to be clear about something. <laughs> I want this to be the pull quote. The Celtics are the villains <laughs> in most of my life in almost any context. But, except for that great movie, Celtic Pride, which really put a different perspective on it for me. But, like Michael Chiklis is giving a nice performance yeah, as Red Auerbach, so, yeah. uh, or imitation, or <laughs> yeah. whatever he's doing. But he's really just shows up to smoke a cigar. By the way, he wasn't coaching the team, but the show doesn't. He's just around. Yeah, he's around. Yeah. But but his words, or his role, or anything about the narrative of is is irrelevant because what his role in the show is now is just to be like his words to Bus really bothered Bus. Bus is going to show him. Who cares about one millionaire beating another one? Right. That's not a show. That's not interesting. What would have been interesting would have been a show that was aware. I mean, now we're just railing on it. Maybe it's un- unfair because I still. Well, this actually it, gets it, to it, the it, like the whole like, are you make are you angry at the show it is or the angry at the show that it could have been? And I, like, are we doing our thing where we're getting like upset about I, the choices I, it didn't make? See, that's I, I do want to pull back because I think I'm going there because the the limit the the weakness of Shout last night. But no, but the weaknesses of last night made me upset about what it could have been. But the strengths of last week made all that go away. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a moment during the, the the Pat Riley episode where I wasn't aware of all the other 
missed opportunities or things that I kind of would personally would be interested in seeing. But I was also very much a piece of it because this was a well-made, entertaining episode of television. Yeah. That, that really solves a lot of problems. Um, well, the thing, you know, what I was saying about The Crown wasn't, and I, this is the kind of thing where it's like, well, I think one of the reasons why you and I have continued to talk about winning time, aside from the fact that there's not a ton on, yeah, is that the subject matter really interests us. The highs of the show are really high. The floor of the show has now dropped quite a bit. I'm also interested in as a TV business story watching something that I thought, I was like, this is going to be huge. Yeah. So many people like the NBA and the Lakers and have HBO are going to want to watch this. It, frankly, in a similar spirit to like, we already know everyone likes zombie shows. Last, right, Last but, of Us. But yeah. HBO is going to do their version of it and they are going to elevate it and put it in a different type of tier right. of conversation, right. which worked for Last of Us. People take it, People talk Will about it. Will you be it. watching Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon? I wanted to ask you about that. He goes to Europe. That's what got me. <laughs> I have very few remaining questions about the world of The Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah. But one of them has always been. Maybe we should fire up Daryl Dixon for Thursday. I, I was going to surprise you with that suggestion. I saw that trailer and I was like, this seems fine. Look at us. This seems fine. <laughs> Look at us. Kaya said we couldn't keep going. No. And here we are. All right. But I, so the reason why I brought up The Crown wasn't like, you should make a big show that's really well-rewarded during award season. It was the way the Crown picks its episode selections, where it picks certain moments in time yes. to be reflective of the larger story. The larger story. Exactly. And that you trust the audience to be able to piece together, oh, okay, Elizabeth is talking about this in this scene, or Diana is talking about this in this scene, or whatever is you know, happening. And I do wonder whether or not, in retrospect, you could have taken... 12, 20 events over the course of four years mm -hmm. and moved through time a little bit more fleet-footedly that way mm -hmm. without it feeling like, wait a second, Paul Westhead got fired in the last episode and now we are going into the 1984 finals in the end of this episode. Yep. That's crazy. Yeah, because it also, either every game matters or it doesn't. And it's very hard to stay aligned with a show that keeps moving the goalposts or or the the, the basket, I guess, in yeah, this keep sports. Yeah, the stanchion. <laughs> Look at you. Yeah. Great job. Yeah, it, it it is, I think you made a good point also by by observing that, like, much like Reservation Dogs, like, these are the shows that are on right now that mm -hmm. we're talking about. So they are getting a different level of rigor in our watching like winning time i i do think last night was egregious yeah frankly so well, so, so be, that's why i'm feeling stronger about it see what happens but, in in this next week when they air the finale yeah. i think of of this of the season what kind of news we get about renewals or not yeah i i i would be lying if i had any insight into that i don't know what their i don't i don't know what their metrics are for like what they spend what they get back and what confidence they have in it creatively going forward i don't know let's, um, which uh, is a bummer because it's when it's good it's fun let's move on to stuff we like yeah drops of god's great really i, I, I wouldn't you. I, I i don't know that it's like i think that i'm starting to ruin my palate a little mm. bit with with some of the tv that i've been watching where i kind of need a certain amount of like the stakes need to be like kind of life or death for me to get up in the morning uh-huh um, thank you, Taylor Sheridan, for what you've done to me. But it was actually really refreshing to watch something where that wasn't the case. You know, that even though there is life and death in this show, that it had just sort of its own tempo, its own, honestly, flavor profile. Am I, doing, am I doing this right? You're doing wonderfully. And uh, can you can you give our listeners just like a little bit of a recap of of the sort of creative team and the in the origin story of this show? I will. I am. I got to be honest. I'm I'm a little bit dazzled here because you know up till now I thought we were only going to cover one kind of like rough and tumble every man's journey into Europe, and that would have been Daryl Dixon or Ryan Rosillo's two and a half hour Spain monologue. I'm saving that. Is it really a solo pod? Did he have it a good is time? As solo as it can possibly be. And was his trip solo? Yes. And did he have a good time? TBD. I'm I'm one hour and fifteen in. This, where where is he? One of the great trip? performances I've ever experienced. This is so is this podcast. I'm really excited about yeah. this. Okay, so so Drops of God is a manga series. Yes, um, it's published obviously in its original Japanese, and it is about wine. And in that, like, there, there's a long tradition of uh, Japanese manga that are like incredibly, incredibly. Um, geeky and technical about particular subject matters. There's yeah. one that I love that's been translated called Oishinbo, which is just a phenomenal 
uh, series about food. This series, to its credit, does not adapt that series exactly. I believe the the um, the Camille character is invented for the show, and it takes more of the like some of the underlying premise of the manga mm-hmm. and opens it up from there. So the series, which is a uh, French Japanese co-production, and it had me at French Japanese co-production, yes. is about a legendary uh, wine expert, kind of like a cooler Robert Parker, I would say, for those in the know. Okay. And this um, is Alexander Leger, right? Yes, who published a guide, um, basically one potentially crankier, idiosyncratic man's opinion about the wines of the world. And it shattered like the paradigm of the wine world. Because of what he valued. And um, as a, right, because he has no tolerance for um, history or reputation um, and is willing to follow um, what he believes to be the correct way to do things. And that was a sensational success, upended the wine of the very high bound wine world and uh, it made him a very rich man and a, a big celebrity. At the beginning of the series, he is, this. I don't think this is a spoiler to say, he is close to the end mm-hmm. and uh, dies. And word reaches his estranged daughter, Camille. Hasn't who, spoken to her in 10 years. She's living in France with her mother and uh, published a, has published a book, but is, has a very odd condition considering her family history, which is it's not just that she doesn't drink. It's not just that she has a distaste for alcohol. It's that if the slightest whiff of an alcoholic beverage crosses her lips, she has kind of a psychedelic seizure freakout. And a massive nosebleed. And a massive nosebleed. Yeah. Um, this is not super convenient because her mysterious father, ha- in his last dying wishes, has sent a, a private jet to pick her up in France to take her back to Japan, where he's been living for the last decade plus of his life. Um and then her inheritance is basically to be to enter into this competition for her father's legacy, estate, and most crucially, and we should an mention unparalleled it's, he, it's a, the the sort of in his last will he leaves a seven million dollar apartment in Tokyo and a one hundred and forty eight million dollar valued wine collection, like the greatest in the world. But to to get that, she needs to face off against her father's uh, prize pupil in analogy. Uh, yes, played uh, this guy Issei Issei Tomine, yeah. who is the sign, sort of the black sheep sign of a very rich Japanese business family who want him to be behave a certain way and be interested in certain things. But his passion is is wine and viticulture, and he was uh, Alexander's star pupil. And so they are pitted against each other in a contest that will go from Tokyo to Italy, back to France, back to Tokyo. The frequent flyer miles are bananas. The PJ is the PJ life must change jet lag profoundly. They seem great, yeah. honestly, throughout. Because she is like off the jet, mm-hmm. Paris, Tokyo, Tokyo, back to like Provence or wherever she's flying, and is like at a restaurant, bag still in hand. But do you know why she's doing so well? Because she's, unlike us, is not about that Heineken at 30,000 feet life. <laughs> No. At least in the early going no. of the show. Yeah. That's probably why she's fine. Yeah. So the show is a contest. Mm-hmm. And it goes, it does have a bunch of flashbacks, shows the history of these characters and families. Um, it is just, frankly, I mean, I think it's an ingenious structure because it is truly, truly smart and passionate about the subject it's covering. You cannot make the show the way that the creators did without actually knowing a little bit about wine or being interested in wine. You also, uh, honestly, you could try to make this as a movie, but it does actually lend itself. It's a very va- like viable, long-form story. Yes, and I think that... that but the, the kind of magical thing about it... Um, the magical thing about it to me is that you couldn't make it unless you did, if you didn't care about wine, but you can watch it and not know about wine. Yeah, Because what, yes. what conveys is the passion and the creativity and the individuality um, and the legacy. And so... In the early going, one of the things that kind of bumped me and then drew me in was that the way the show illustrates Camille's uncanny ability to identify uh, smell and mm-hmm. taste. And she's like, it'll cut to the, the actress walking through like a dusty library where she's sniffing things or smelling things or it uses color on the screen to suggest what she's... And that's just fun. It's just illustrating something that can't otherwise really be illustrated um, through like, TV. Uh, Daredevil. It's just like... Daredevil. Do you yeah. mean the new Daredevil series, well, or like the how, way like, that Matt Murdock lives? Crime. Yeah, you, I I like it when you just secretly still remember some stuff about characters you don't care about. <laughs> that was always chill when he would just like sit on a roof mm-hmm. and be like, ah, crime I, is happening. I hear a robbery. Yeah, 
Um, the, <laughs> the, the creator of the show is Kwok Dong Tron, who is a French TV creator. He worked on one of my favorite French shows, Call My Agent. Mm -hmm. The show is made in three languages, some, maybe even four sometimes. It is the most internationally geared show I can remember since 000, where somebody right. was like, you know what would be cool is if we made a Mexican-Italian-American cocaine saga, and this is, let's get Tokyo and Paris on camera. That sounds like a good idea. And we, ha and we will really film in these places, yeah. and they will look amazing. Um, and... Subtitles are on for English, even when the characters speak English, which they do often. Yeah. One fun thing about that on your Apple TV Plus is that, I don't know if this happened for you, is that every episode for me began with a banging trailer for Invasion or Invasion in French, which fully dubbed. <laughs> Sometimes I, very... I was having some issues with my Apple TV the mm -hmm. other day, and I clicked back a couple of times and it turned on voice activation. And when you mm -hmm. do that, uh, it starts describing everything that's happening. Max, oh. HBO, winning time. Season two, episode three, Magic Johnson has a conversation with Cookie. Like that's actually the episode, I believe. <laughs> that, that's weird that you did that. Yeah. That's how I remember. That was just the episode. our podcast. So, I, look, you, the way you feel about enhanced interrogation techniques is how I feel about beautiful wines from around the world. Yeah. So well, I, was I was in on this you, no matter what. Was there ever a moment where something that seems to be made in a lab for you actually like? At, felt off at all because you yourself know a lot about wine and know a lot about this culture going into it. Like, are you like, it has a higher bar to satisfy me I because this is already a passion? I think I, I know what you mean, like in the sense where like familiarity makes you nitpick in a different yeah, way. Like, I think because like that happens to me all the time. When you watch shows about like like Navy SEALs. Well, no, but like for instance, like Bill and I will often talk about like movies in, on rewatchables or whatever, or even on Big Picture, we talked about this too, where it's like you have like, you're either whether your expectations are too high or they they seem to make something that you like. You're like, did you scrape this from my brain? Right. And we were talking. We were talking about the film American Gangster, which I think is like drastically improved in the years since it has come out. But at the moment, was like, oh, this isn't like I thought. Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, and Denzel Washington, Steve Zalian were gonna make a perfect like Sidney Lumet crime yeah. movie, and it just didn't do it. Oh, I know what you mean. I think that though, in this case. It's all about what the point of view is and what the creators prioritize. And I think again and again, what they prioritized was the family drama. And and also, and this is actually how I feel about food and wine generally, which is not that like the secret ingredient is love, but that like to understand what makes something good and what the subjectivity of that can come from, you have to understand where it's from and who's making it. And the story is as important as the taste, mm -hmm. quite frankly. And this show never loses sight of that. So it doesn't get into the weeds really of the 13 or 14 um, grape varietals that go into a Chardonnay de Pop or whatever that comes up later. Um, that's, that's a spoiler. That's good, good, so, good job. Sorry. You. What yeah. it does is just like, why is she so motivated to do it? What would it mean for her to do this? Um, you know, it, it, the, the, the characters on the show have a superpower, but they don't feel particularly like, it's not like it's helping them. They're all a little odd. And they just speak a different language in addition to the other languages on the show. I think if anything, the one thing that might trip people up isn't the subject matter. It's just that, you know, broadly speaking, this is the thing of international uh, productions. If you're filming in Tokyo and you need like people from all over the world who can also speak English, you are not necessarily getting... The, Are you talking about Luca Inglese? I am talking about Luca Inglese. So who, I, plays, I've said, I think I've said this on the podcast before. I don't mean to harp on it. The guy sells it he's probably a very good actor in his native italian but like there there are moments when people are camille why would you choose to do this thing and it's just like okay uh i like the fact that the multiple languages used in the show are actually a feature not a bug and that one of the themes of the show is there's the scientific element of being able to identify certain things and then there is the poetic element of being able to describe them Mm. And Issei is challenged early on when he's going in. He's, so he's basically like this almost savant when it comes to being able to identify and, and select wines. And he goes in to do an interview at a major restaurant corporation. And they're like, you know, you, we don't know about you. You're inexperienced. So we've come up with a test of our own. This is when he's just entering this test. Uh, and they're like, can you identify this wine? And he just smells it four times and nails it. Yes. 
And N- nails not just the grape varietal, but like the winemaker and the, the whole year. card, the whole index card. He yeah. gets it, and they're like, "Yeah, nice job," but you didn't describe it. And he right. was like, "Well, that's because you didn't ask me to." Yeah, and that's the way you feel about basketball, right? Like you can name <laughs> the, the stats and box score. That's me. But I thought that was like really interesting. Not only were there cultural differences about like task oriented or, or mm-hmm. poetically oriented, and I thought it was fascinating to this sort of what are the limits of your expertise? Are your expertise largely like science-based? Are they largely experiential? Mm-hmm. Are they prone to flights of fancy? Or are you all about like ones and zeros when it comes down to certain things? And I think that the language barriers that different characters experience, and uh, I've watched four episodes, so I got to get to the point where I think you learn a lot more about the connection between Camille and Issei that that may, may or may not exist. Uh so I you found, saw this for the flashback episode? Yeah. yeah. It's when you, you get Alexander uh, Young and Alexander. Issei's parents' mm-hmm. story about their kind of crisscrossing. Uh, one of the other things I thought was fascinating is the, you know, maybe it's not suspension of disbelief, but like, okay, this story that is happening in the show is being covered in Japan. It, like it's huge as news, if yes. it's the, like, game seven of the NBA finals every day where they're like yeah. interviewing them, paparazzi is following them around. Do you think that that would be, I guess if it was for $150 million, I would be interested, but I don't know if I would be checking it, like what's up with the Wagner group, (laughs) you know? Like, do you feel like that was like, uh, it's unlikely that it would be covered that way? I just feel like, is it a slow news week in Japan? Like what's going on? Well, I can't speak to the way news gets covered in Japan. You know, I, um, I, I am an expert on uh-huh. our changing media landscape. But I, for me, I thought that the angle was more like this already kind of famous business family, and this, scientific and, business and family. And she in her own right is supposed to be somewhat famous because of her book, but has never it, done another one, right? Yes. I think it's also, but I think it's more like, it's not about wine being important. It's about like, this guy is going to become a hundred millionaire, like right. based off of something. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, maybe it was a slow Newsday, I, I don't know. So is, where's your, after watching the whole season for you, mm-hmm. are, are you feeling like this is a top five show for you? Is it a show that you really like, but under, like, where, where, what's your kind of so objective viewpoint on it? It's hard to have an objective viewpoint on it because I love this show. It's, it'll, I would be shocked if it was not in my top 10 for the year. Um, I am also not blind to some of its failings. Like, I think that there I think is... it's very deliberately paced. It's deliberately paced, but also the the plotting is quite deliberate in that, like, this happens and then this happens. And, and, and I will say that I found... I don't want to have people... I don't want to convince people not to watch it, but I found the end to be almost... Not a letdown, but there were not twists and turns. Mm-hmm. I will put it that way. Um, and I kind of wish there were. But... Uh, I, for me, it's more of an example of, it's hard to use this as an exemplar of what TV should be because this is, it, it's almost like- a, I, I, I honestly can't believe it got made by Apple. Well, I, I think Apple picked it, like someone funded sure. this. Yeah, I just, like, it, I'm it almost is, like, I can't, this is wild. You yes, know? it is not for everyone. It is not- You can't get LA Confidential 2 off the ground, but- But this can't. Yeah. But, it, but, it, but that's the international aspect of yeah. it. It's the Apple part of it. So much of this is timing. The international piece. The international piece is key. Shout <laughs> the, out to FIBA. The global piece. Um, you know, you don't need a- You do need a big man different way, as it turns <laughs> out, globally. Um, it, these are the projects that I'm happy get- Me Can too. still get made. Me too. Because it, I think it's beautiful, and it's thoughtful, and it's tasteful, and it's just a lovely, lovely experience- um, it is also not what's what's the word our our friends in Silicon Valley say iterative. Well, like I don't know what the I don't know how there could be a second season. I don't know what the drops of God expanded universe could look like. But it does suggest a place for this is not this is not some niche thing, right? Even though it's about wine, you know, I I think that this type of storytelling could be quite popular internationally because it is, to your point, it's deliberative. The emotional family stuff is not breaking any new ground. Mm -hmm. It's quite old-fashioned in a lot of ways. Um, It just really cares about its characters and cares about its subject matter in a way that makes, I mean, now I'm sounding, pull this quote, it makes you smile. Well, there's like a way in which they, they do, they shoot scenes you're saying like, oh, I, I wish there were some more surprises. I think there's a lot of scenes 
when you see that 56, 57 minute runtime. Yes. Where it's like, yep. she gets out of the car. She walks down the hallway. She walks into the restaurant. Someone mm-hmm. pulls out her chair. She sits down and then the scene starts. And, and it's like, is it awesome to look at this really nice car, a beautiful shot of Tokyo, her entering a gorgeous restaurant, walking down a lovely hallway and sitting down at this mm-hmm. table? Yes. Would another version of this show be like, and now she's sitting at the table? Right. Yes. Yeah. And then you find out that the entire restaurant is just like a false flag op set up by the <laughs> Japanese government to discredit the French winemaker's French daughter to bring the victory home. Yeah. Zoe orders the drone strike. This is, this is, this is right, right? Like, um, I'm really glad I checked it out. I will d- finish it. Did it change or affect your opinions about wine in any way? Like, like just p- from that perspective? I, no. No, it hasn't. Did it make you crave a glass? Is it of wine? weird? I just can I just say I think wine activates my histamine because you're not a wine guy. Chris, you, can I speak freely on sure. Mike? At a restaurant, Chris is kind of like let's let's keep the pilsners coming kind of guy. Not, I like to go cocktail beer at a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. I and I and I wish I had a more of a taste for wine, and right. I will occasionally drink it. Yeah. But red especially makes me congested. Do you, so? Do you do you ascribe to this like sulfites make me? make me ill kind of thing. Do you think you're allergic to something in the wine? Are, wait, did your father, when you were a child, <laughs> force make you to force smell and taste and spit? No. Many wines no, so no, that no. now you can... Are you sure? Is there something here we could unpack? Yeah, I, I vividly remember it. No. Are you, are you Camille? <laughs> are you, yeah, you remember I just all think it's it? just like, I have yet to... It's like jazz. You know, it's like one day it'll happen, but not yet. Or it won't. Yeah. Great seeing you today. So I fun. guess we're doing Walking Dead Daryl Dixon on Thursday along with Reservation Dogs. Thanks as always to Kai McMullen for producing that's us. Pre- that's premiered already, right? I believe so, Should yes. I watch it with the French dub? <laughs> Just to feel like more authentic to Daryl's watch experience? Watch it with a, a cab sap. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Thanks for listening to The Watch. <laughs>